You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 181. And we have a really special guest uh, lined up for you today, A lot, one that's been requested quite a bit. I have to tell you this, that as, within a three-day period of time, I've had some of this guest videos messaged to me or texted to me, like nonstop, like from like five or six different people, my wife was messaging me going, you have to watch this video, like watch <laughs> yeah. this. And I'm like, all right, all right. I was like, it, it was like all out mania all of a sudden mm-hmm. within my social circle and work circle that everyone's like, you have to see this. Yeah. You have yeah. to watch this. So, and I was, I was hooked Very from cool. that point, that point on. Yeah. So you may know him from Redwood Risings and uh, our guest today is, is Griff, Ranger Griff. So, Griff, would you like to give yourself a, a better introduction than I could ever give you? Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I'm super happy to be here. I guess I'm a ranger, but you know in California, for California State Parks, uh, rangers are only law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And so I get, uh, but that's not the way it is with national parks. That's not yeah. a way, the way it is with most parks. So, like, Ranger Griff is fine for here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, uh, for state parks, my official title is a natural resource and cultural interpreter. Yeah, awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah, it's mouthful, huh? That, that is, but I like that. That's a good title. I like that. Yeah, it sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I mentioned earlier, I was getting inundated with your videos, which is a good thing because your videos are highly entertaining and That's incredibly. So cool. You didn't tell me that. That was, that was good. <laughs> incredibly was educational. Good. And it was literally like, nonstop i was like wow here's someone else has just found this someone else just found this um sweet so you know a lot of our listeners know you from redwood risings you've also had uh an, uh, a show on on animal planet wild jobs yeah. um yeah. i don't know a lot about your background though um as a conservationist uh, specifically can so you, you tell us to- <laughs> yeah just a little bit like, like- the story yeah <laughs> 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 um. So what, what part of my background would you like me to start on? Well, you mentioned in one of your videos, too, you were also a firefighter at one point. So I'm assuming oh, yeah. there's multiple facets of what got you to here today. Oh, yeah. I have, I've been a lot of different griffs. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of knowledge in there, too, which is extremely fascinating. Just all in one subject, though. Don't ask me about anything outside of ecology, and we'll be fine. <laughs> You'll think I'm smart yeah. as long as you don't ask me anything outside. <laughs> um, so, like, how did I get started? So I've been a, I, I've been in natural resource work my whole entire life. I have not really done anything that wasn't natural resource besides natural resource work besides a little bit of agriculture. I did okay. agriculture for a couple seasons, and I worked on a fishing boat. I guess that's still natural resources. But um, other than that, my whole entire career has been biological service was the best experience and if if your listeners have kids that want to volunteer at a wildlife care center i think wildlife care centers make you bring your parents now if you're under 16 but back in the day like my parents would just drop me off you know how it was back in the day it was a little (laughs) bit more independent than it is today but um if you can do that with your kids 
That was one of the best things for me. And it was really good that my parents weren't there because my parents were super religious and the people at the wildlife care center were much more diverse. And so it was a really good experience for me, but that's how I got started was working at a wildlife care center. That's it. And, and what, cause you, you froze for a little bit at the beginning. What age was that for you? 12. 12. I was 12. Wow. The- yeah. I, I, I found there's some older kids in my um, neighborhood that were shooting birds and one of them didn't die. And I was just so pissed, you know, that because I was raised by hunters, but like my grandfather was very much one of those hunters, like you kill it, you eat it. Mm-hmm. And he was a wilderness survival instructor. So like he, he meant that literally, like we ate all kinds of terrible things, especially like his own kids, my mom and stuff. But so that that's what inspired me to get involved in wildlife conservation was just seeing people abuse wildlife. And so it started when I was 12 and went my whole entire life. That's a wonderful story, though. It's it makes me think of Stan Temple from uh, oh, yeah. the Aldo Leopold Foundation was telling us as a kid he had such an interest in wildlife, but his mother, being a single parent, didn't really know enough to help him with that. But she knew enough to take him to Audubon Society events and mm-hmm. drop him off. And my he, mom did. <laughs> he, he 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 was saying that he. Uh, was kind of befriended by one of the women on the tour that would kind of he's like as people went off and were were counting birds she was explaining why birds were doing what they're doing or what their habitat was and he goes uh, she was a profound influence and i never really thought about it and i was watching a disney documentary once and her name popped up and he was like oh rachel carson that's miss carson from he had no idea that his mentor was oh, wow. was the author yeah. rachel carson so it was very profound it's just I find those interactions really interesting how it happens and how it shapes you at that age. Well, mine was Dara Nance and I haven't been able to find her. So if anybody out there knows who Dara Nance is, tell her that I thank her for my whole entire, like everything. She, she was my mentor at the wildlife care center when I was 12 and it was just me and her on Sundays and these dilapidated, like should have been condemned. I don't, I don't, we might've been squatting for all I know. These <laughs> buildings were in terrible repair and the lights were blinking and the water was gross. And we had all these wildlife. We were broke and it was just me and her. And she would train me how to feed, you know, bottle feed fawns and birds and clean cages and weigh animals. It was just me and her. And she had this, you know, 12 year old, you know, assistant 13, 14. I did it till I was 16. So, but she was amazing. So if she's out there, please contact me so I can thank you. When you're describing it, it almost sounded like a Saw movie with the lights blinking. And the- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it was, we were ghetto. But, you know, they have a much better facility now. So, and that, soon Wildlife Care Center. That's wonderful. We have one by us called the uh, Woodford Cedar Run Wildlife mm-hmm. Refuge, which is uh, in Medford, New Jersey, in kind of like the middle of a populated area that it's mm. amazing – when you think of the amount of wildlife that comes through there, what they're able to do with the funds that they have, it's just, it it takes dedicated people. Oh, those are the best. Like if you ever want to meet the best people in the world, go to a wildlife care center. They're all really, uh, well, maybe I should be careful. Um, (laughs) Many of them are eccentric. So. (laughs) Well, the, the one thing we noticed as we talked (laughs) to everyone that we talked to there, when we asked them how they got interested, they were all interns and then built their career choices through being an intern there and stayed. So it was just amazing that yeah. everyone we've talked to there has been there 20 years, 25 years, just, and it's kind of worked oh, their yeah. way up and have done everything. I love those kinds of people. Yeah, they're among my favorites. That's awesome. So f- 
I'm yeah, sorry, I was going to say, so from there, what got you into the role you're in today? Well, let me go fast on this part because, um, you know, being, I, I never had kids. I never did anything like besides nature stuff, being very focused. Um, it just turned out that way. So um, I had like a, I dropped out of high school and went through a wild period. And then I joined the California Conservation Corps, which at that time was for guys like me. Uh, kids like me, male and female. And um, I got in there and they immediately taught me how to, they fire trained me and flood trained me. Wow. And then I was doing restoration work. I was doing a lot of different ecological restoration work, 18 years old, got my GED. Uh, they moved me out of my hometown, which was probably the very best thing that ever happened to me was getting me out of my hometown, my hometown. And um, from there I got to the forest service and I did fish surveys and I was on fire crew. So I was on a fire crew that also did fish surveys because back in the nineties, there wasn't as many fires. So you could do two positions at once. Now, if you're a firefighter, you're a firefighter all summer because the fires rage all summer. Um, And then after that, let's see. So after the forest service was the nature conservancy and I was a restoration intern for the restoration for the nature conservancy and did plant surveys for them. And then after that, let me see. I actually wrote it down because I knew you guys were going to ask me and I did so many <laughs> different things. I worked in greenhouses during college and I went to college like one semester a year and I was a plant science TA. Um, I was the only, I guess, only non-nature job I had during college was I was a bouncer in some pretty rowdy bars. And that was so much fun. <laughs> this is before uh, social media. So you could do things and then not have to worry about <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh. If there was social media back then, there would be a man. I'm so glad there wasn't. I'm glad there weren't cell phones with cameras, all that stuff. I know. I think everybody in Gen X is because we were different, but anyways. um, So then I got on trail crews and I did watershed restoration with state parks. And then I did bird banning and I worked for the wildlife conservation society doing bird surveys, worked on a fishing boat, uh, grew some seed for the seedless watermelon and then I got back into the California Conservation Corps as a supervisor. And I did that for about 17 years. And that was, I was mostly doing salmon habitat restoration and invasive species removal and planting trees and building trails and finding fires. And in the middle of all that, all that um, craziness happened. And that's how the Animal Planet show happened. And then three years ago, I went to state parks. And recently, I became a part-time spokesperson for Redwoods Rising, which is one of the biggest most awesome restoration projects in the world. So definitely the United States. Given all the different areas that you've worked in restoration, do you have a favorite? Mm-hmm. Is there is there one that you particularly like, yeah, I, I really like this. To do as a practitioner? Yeah. yeah. Oh, by far salmon habitat restoration because you Man, it's so fun because you're like, we would go, sometimes we work with heavy equipment, but most of the time my crew did stuff that heavy equipment couldn't get to. So we're using grip hoist, which is like a pulley system. It's hard to explain. Um, it's like a, using a come along, but a giant come along and you mm-hmm. drag logs with your just labor, just cranking this wow. handle back and forth. And you got all these cables and all these people and it's dangerous and fun and exciting. And then you get into the water and then you prop it up on another tree and then you drill a hole through it, pound some rebar through it and you connect it to rocks. And then one of my favorite things about it is you come back the very next year after the winter storms hit those logs, they scour out the bottom, they make pools, they sort the gravel so it turns into spawning habitat. And you return the next year and you can see uh, 
the fish and amphibians and other things responding to your work. I mean, there'd be birds perched on those logs hunting. It was amazing. I, I absolutely love salmon. I could do it for free for the rest of my life, salmon habitat restoration. Um, you better watch it. You're going to get a call now from someone going, hey, I heard you'd like to. <laughs> yeah. They all know me. Everybody who does salmon habitat restoration knows I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that world. has your whole life consisted on the West Coast? Are you like a, a California guy and you've always been there? Or have you worked in other parts of the country? Okay. So I have to tell the short story. So okay. I was uh, I was involved with Redwood Summer. So Earth First was protesting the liquidation of the old growth redwoods. And then the nineties, I got recruited by this woman named Betty ball. Who's kind of famous in that environmental world, radical environmental world. She's not really radical. She's just determined and mm-hmm. super down for the earth. But, um, she recruited us. And so we did a lot of stuff, including getting signatures signed, but the forest forever initiative on the ballot. And when it failed, because the timber companies came up with a competing uh, ballot that spread the, split the environmental vote, it was a genius strategy of theirs. And it broke my heart so bad that I packed my backpack up and left California because I was so mad at California. So, I'm, you know, I'm 19 and I'm like, fine, then I'm out of here. <laughs> and um, so I went to, I ended up in Ohio and joined the Ohio Civilian Conservation Corps and spent eight months there. And then I hitchhiked all through Michigan and Canada and loved it out there. Loved it. Um, but the winters, the second winter, I was like, I'm good. I'm out of here. Y'all can keep the winters. <laughs> and I left. Well, we were just having this conversation in the office office. Cause I was saying there's parts of Wisconsin that I absolutely love, but mm-hmm. I can't imagine that long of a winter for myself. No. Like no. I like the change of season, but there's gotta be a, it's gotta be dispersed a little more even. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a coastal Californian too long and like our weather is kind of the same year around. So it's like always 65-ish, you know, it dips down to 40-ish and then dips up to like high 70s, but it's pretty much the same year around. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty nice. Yeah. I could get used to that. I could get used yeah. to that too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're lifelong New Jersey. Mm-hmm. We're we're right on, we're just outside of Philadelphia, basically. We're oh, about okay. an hour and a half south of, of New York City and, and maybe where the nursery's at, we're about a half an hour north of Philadelphia, but it's, we... You know, and I'm familiar with that, and I know what I love about that and what makes it unique. To you, what makes California unique? For someone that hasn't visited there, what are some of the natural features that you love about California? Oh, gosh. We would need to do a 10-hour podcast. <laughs> just for me to go through one county, that would be, and that would be a speed trip. Um, so let me just say that we're the Est State. We have the tallest trees and mountain. We have, well, at least in the continental, it's one of mm-hmm. the tallest mountains. Um, we have the oldest bristlecone pine. We have the most diversity. Um, we have the most endemics. Uh, we have like just the oldest, oldest, tallest, biggest, you know, we have the most biomass per acre in a redwood forest than any other place on the planet. And people are like, more than the Amazon? Yes, more than the Amazon. There's more diversity in the Amazon, probably in one acre than there is in the entire state of California. But we have the biomass. So it's the most living place on the planet is in the redwoods. So we have all these really interesting features. And California is a big state, and and it's such a diverse place. It's this crazy diverse. You can be in the desert. Well, you know what the best example is? Is like you can surf and snow ski in the same day mm-hmm. yep. in parts of California. You know, it's just like... It's an amazing, amazing place. And if you're a plant nerd, your head explodes here. Like I have plant nerds come visit me from the East Coast sometimes. 
And they're like, we got, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, have you ever seen uh, (laughs) (laughs) serpentine endemics? You know, (laughs) and they're like, please show me. And it's like, we got pitcher plants. We got all kinds of cool stuff. So California is a great place to be a naturalist. Um, It's one of the best places in the world to be a naturalist, I think. And and as an outsider, it, I feel as though California celebrates that. You know, mm-hmm. we loved we uh, Tom and I had read the article about um, the groundskeeper at Dodger Stadium uh, turning the grounds to all native plantings. Uh, oh, which, I didn't know that. Yeah, and yep. it was different oh. areas too. He's like, you know, we want to get like a little bit of Nevada, a little bit of this, and it was different gardens for different types of areas oh. and they they're labeling them as native plantings they're like why why does it have to be cookie cutter why can't it be native why can't we celebrate what makes this area America, this area yeah. which which i thought was amazing like yeah. i don't see that happening anywhere else yeah you know it's funny when you said that i was like oh it's almost patriotic we should have like a patriotic native plant movement i love that for some of the more concert, like that's how conservative <laughs> some of the conservative folks can get more into native plants. It's like it's the patriotic thing one to a, do. One of Fran's favorite stories is a, a guy, John McGee, who's the host of the Native Plant Podcast, and then has his own McGee uh, landscape design. I think yeah. focuses on native plants. They're right outside of, of Washington D.C. And um, I guess he was doing the landscape for it was an admiral or some admiral. higher up in in the military, and uh, kind of the guy poo pooed at his landscape design. Said, "Oh, I want." Like he, all these other, he wanted Japanese barbarian, and, yeah. <laughs> and that was his sales pitch. Is he's like, well, don't you think we should celebrate the plants that are native to the like United America. States and the, the plants that are native to Virginia? Yeah, and you're, like yeah. proud of those. <laughs> and then the guy was all about it. Yeah, he was. Well, he for said, sure, though, it was just a framing. Sure. He's like, I love Virginia plants. He goes, yeah. I'd rather have Virginia plants than Chinese plants. And it just struck yeah. a chord with him. He's like, oh, I I get that. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't realize that native plants, you know, that's what gives a place its character. You know, mm-hmm. it's like when when people come visit me, they don't go, oh, I loved the daffodils you had in your yard. They're like, oh, my gosh, the redwoods and blah, blah, blah. You know, like you want places to have character of, you know, uh, of where they're from. You know, and that's that's why so many of our cities are invisible now. It's because we have the same mm-hmm. strip mall boxes. And we have the same exact plants. I mean, we could probably sit here and name them all the same. I call them parking lot plants. Yeah. And it's just like, stop it. Why are we doing that mindless thing over and over again? Like let, let Southern California look like Southern California. Let New Jersey look like New Jersey. Let Florida look like Florida, you know, stop making us all look the same. Good Lord. Exactly. You tell it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. <laughs> no, ah. me too. We even went as far to, to make a, we have friends actually wearing one where it says plant native plants on his shirt, but we went and made some that said plant American plants. And it's like all red, white, and blue. And, uh, with the flag pattern in it for that same reason, it's the, when looking at it from, um, and I hate that it gets to be political, but you look at it from political space, you have people who don't like this movement for political reasons. And, um, and that was my sales pitch to them is, Hey, you're, Look at this. We You're celebrating up, come up the plants that are here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like keep America American planted or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I, I love – and I'm going to – this is where I go off topic and completely forget about what, what questions we have to ask is one of the things I love about your videos is that it's a way of getting people – a way of, of kindly – getting people to appreciate native plants. It's not mm-hmm. – you're not hitting anyone over the head. You're not yeah. forcing anyone, but you're you're expressing the beauty and the importance 
and letting people kind of make those decisions. And yeah. That's something we we struggle with, and that's a question we get asked all the time. It's like, oh, well, my neighbor does this, and I'm I'm unhappy. It's like everyone's on a different journey. You kind of have to let them have that journey at their pace, the same way you were afforded that. And it's it's difficult yeah. to have those conversations sometimes. I try not to be condescending at all, and I'll tell you why. It's there's many reasons, but one of them is we're living in the time of oh yeah, we're like everybody can't wait to you know, re give a rebuttal on something. It's, it's almost like cultural. Yeah. Uh, it's the time of contrarians almost. And so, uh, and, and I react that way too. I'm not talking about everybody else. It's me too. Like, you know, I often feel challenged by stuff like right at first. And I got to tell myself that really wasn't a challenge. That's just kind of like the culture we're in. So like for me to tell people like, <clears throat> oh, you, you idiots are feeding wildlife and that's what's leading to the problems with wildlife in the neighborhoods and people killing them and blah, blah, blah. No one's going to be like, oh, he's right. I am an idiot. I'm going to stop. <laughs> like no one said that. You're never like, oh, you dummy. You planted those plants from Asia and you live in Florida and they're not going to be like, you're right. I am a dummy. How could I do that? Let me take those plants up right now. No one's doing that. That doesn't work. You know, and, and but we keep doing it over and over again. Like it works. It doesn't work doesn't work on me. I wish somebody would. So it's like, um, we have to tell people the incentives. We have to tell people like why it will make their, why it will improve their trip. Why it will make their life better. Why it will make going out into your yard so much more interesting because there'll be butterflies back there. There'll be more birds. Like this isn't a thing that you should do to be a good person. This is a thing that you should do because it's cool. You know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it doesn't matter who you are, what religion you are, what political spectrum you're at. It doesn't, none of that matters. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of like what, where I'm coming from is like, I don't want anybody to feel bad. I don't want to like make people feel bad about being a conservationist. I don't even like using fear. Like, well, you do know global warming is going to fry all your hair off. You know, it's like, I don't even want to do that. I mean, people know they've gotten that message. There's no one that's like, oh, I heard climate change is actually a wonderful, beautiful thing. Like no one's doing that. <laughs> so it's like, we don't have anybody to convince, you know what I mean? <clears throat> it's but- now about solutionary action and how this will enrich your life. For me, yeah. that's where it's at. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's connecting reactions. Yeah. It's connecting native plants to, and, and all that, the good they bring to what people are passionate about. Um, yeah. That's been a big part well, of our message is, hey, they, they might not care about bees. They might be afraid of bees. So don't pitch mm-hmm. them bees, pitch them, well, they might like the fish and then pitch them all. That's how it benefits fish habitat. And even having them in your yard is going to clean the water and, Help everything downstream in a way. And that was kind of one of yeah. Tom's visions when we started this podcast almost four years ago now that there's a lot of great organizations working towards the same end goal but for different reasons. You know, mm-hmm. and it's you know, there's hunters, they want habitat because they, they want habitat, so they have the right habitat to bring in the, the animals that they're hoping for. You know, it's that there yeah. are so many different things and if you can bridge all these gaps, it would be great. But it's I mean, these are conversations. I, I listen to Tom and his wife have these conversations <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about, yeah. you know, what a yard should look like. I've had these conversations with my wife when when we first uh, moved in together. Our yard has a ton of New Jersey natives, but also has every invasive plant imaginable that you could think of in New Jersey. And some of them she had very strong emotional ties to because she's from Poland and she had these plants in Poland and it made her think mm-hmm. of home. And who am I oh, to yeah. say that how you feel or, or what your emotional attachment to that plant is wrong? But what helped was just starting to plant, you know, one of the first things we planted was cardinal flower. And that first bloom when we got hummingbirds, it mm-hmm. was all over. 
that was it. It's like, oh, what else can we do? What else can we plant to bring other things in here? Yes. And, that, and that started yeah. started that journey, you know. And it's, I think of our last guest, Tim Mack, who's a, a birdscaper, who was saying he's like, I don't really care if I'm popular with my neighbors. I want to be popular with the birds. <laughs> like I, yeah. I want them, I want them to be happy with me. Yeah, I think that you know with. With bringing people into native plantings, I used to be radical and I used to be like, every plant needs to be native. And I used to lands, go to my mom's house and landscape her yard and turn it into like these jungles and stuff. She couldn't even go outside. It got so dense and crazy. <laughs> but um, like no design, just like planet, just like creating a riparian forest because she lived next to a creek. So I just made her yard this like very thick elderberry willow mugwort, wolf's <laughs> <laughs> fat, like riparian forest. And um, I don't do that to her anymore, anybody else. So, because people have their attachments to plants. Now, my people, I'm Irish. Um, my people came here, and I'm Welsh, I'm Welsh and Irish. And in, in Wales, the old, the people who came here from Wales and Ireland had interesting connections to English ivy. And, um, you know, we'd make reefs and, and hang them over our doors uh, to keep evil spirits away. And so this was a very important part of our culture. And so they brought them here with them. And English ivy is like the worst invasive in old growth forest. It's the only, it's the only invasive plant that could get established without, distur- without disturbance in, a, in an old growth riven forest. So when I tell people about landscaping their yards, like should you have, you know, like have a percentage of native plants for the birds and the bees and the butterflies. And then if you have plants that have a strong cultural connection, just check with like plant right or someone or your UC extension office and make sure it's not invasive first, you know, and, and if it is, you know, don't plant it or keep it in your house or something, you know, don't let it go to seed or something, be vigilant. <laughs> um, and then, but do have some plants that like remind you of your grandma. I, I have some plants that I plant that remind me of my grandma that aren't native um, because she was like one of the most special humans that ever was on this planet. So um, I, I do plant some plants that remind me of her, but I like to give people a way out because people are attracted and attached to their decorative plants. What, what Doug Ptolemy calls decoration plants, the ornamentals. So I think it's important to let them have that and, and to encourage them to plant some edible plants too. Like mm-hmm. even if they're not native. No, I, that's that they're very great points. Um, before because we we have a lot of questions about the redwoods and 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 some of the work that you do there. When did you kind of know, or when did was it? Did you know that you would have such a great voice for social media for sending spreading this good message, or did someone see it in you that kind of said you should do this? Like because it's very educational, very entertaining. It's kind of the right combination for everything, and it's you watch it and you want to watch another one. You don't want to turn it off. Oh, that's one of that's the best kind of feedback. I am. Um, I was a Luddite, believe it or not, guys. I like wanted nothing to do. When they told me my last year in college, because it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's because I went like spring semesters. Because in the fall semester, there's salmon <laughs> yeah. service to do and there's fires <laughs> to fight. Like, I'm not going to walk away from that just to go to school, you know? Yeah. So it's like, I was having too much fun. So it took me a long time to get through. And um, and I did not want to email. I did not want a computer. And so and I told myself, don't worry, I got your back. You're going to work outside your whole entire life. You're never going to sit at a desk because I don't know if I have ADHD or LMLP or what I have. Um, but I was not down for like being inside of any buildings. So one day I, I was so I stayed away from email, social media, everything till pretty late in life. And so I guess it was 2012. My core member said, 
<clears throat> so California Conservation Corps. So its core members are 18 to 25 year olds are from all over California. Some of them are college students, but most of them were like me when I joined the CCC yeah. in 89. Uh, they were like looking to get out from trying to escape something, you know, like, you know, either laziness or drugs or gangs or whatever. So a lot of them were like how I was when I joined the CCC. And so I would take pictures for my boss and, and and I would show them the picture on this, this like primitive digital camera. And they're like, we need you to put that on MySpace and YouTube and blah, blah, blah. And you should be like, and I was like, no, you'll never see me. And they're like, you'll never see me on social media. And they're like, Oh, we already created three Griff pages for you. So one on <laughs> MySpace, one on YouTube and one on Facebook. And then you can upload those pictures. So our moms can see them and then upload pictures of yourself. So our moms can see them too. Cause everybody was always trying to hook me up with their mom. So I was like, Okay, well, all right, so we'll do it. So I started posting things to the, you know, MySpace and Facebook, but I didn't care about it. I didn't pay attention to it. I was just doing it for them. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with it. And then one day we were doing salmon habitat restoration, and um, I guess the creek name doesn't matter, but it was down in, in Southern Humboldt. And we were staying in this remote facilities, and we were cleaning up after breakfast. The music was on, and these two of my core members were dancing. And they said, jump in there, Griff. And so I jumped in there. And the reason why I danced is because I'm this big, hairy, white guy in the middle of the mountains. And most of the core (laughs) members are not white. Most of them are, you know, black, everything. Because this is California, so we got everybody. So, um, and so, and a lot of them were from areas where they weren't used to being around white people or their experience with white people was super negative and scary. And so I knew they felt uncomfortable with me. I could see it. I could sense it. <clears throat> but what they didn't know about me is that I grew up in the Bay Area. I had been around multiculturalism my whole entire life. Bay Area, you know, so it's like I was white boy fresh. I was on a breakdance crew. I rapped. <laughs> I was Casper D. And this is all back before <laughs> Beastie Boys and Eminem, you know, so I, I'm OG. <laughs> and so I... And so I danced and they put it on a video and, and, and I looked at that video afterwards and they loved it. They're laughing about it. Like, I can't. and I was like, uh, they're like, put that on your, our, your Facebook. We created you. And I was like, Oh hell no, no one needs to see a fat cowboy dancing. <laughs> and, um, they're like, our moms do. Cause everybody's trying to hook me up with their mom. <laughs> so, uh, told him I said your mom's got two weeks but I was so embarrassed because I looked like this fat cowboy and they were like smooth athletic guys and but right away people were like that's cultural competency so I was really good friends with Rumat from Outdoor Afro at the time because I was trying to get more of these young black folks to see themselves in nature because they didn't because whenever we went to parks the rangers are white the firefighters are white everybody's white and so um I was trying to help you know, diversify these places and also trying to help these black kids that aren't seeing themselves reflected back you know in these, you know, in conservation. So Rue Map started Outdoor Afro, mm-hmm. which slogan is where black people in nature mate. And so I told her, I, I contacted her when she was still a podcast. And I was like, I was like, you know what I hear all the time? She said, what? I said, I hear black people don't do that. And she, you know, when it comes to climbing trees or swimming in creeks or whatever. And she's like, that's not true. I said, I know it is because I grew up around black kids, but I got this group of really urban black kids who believe that. And so I started working with her and it was a really good partnership and led to, the bio blitz stand. Oh, so that other video went super viral, by the way. So room map was one that told me it was going viral. And so after that, I was stuck on social media and I saw how it increased our recruitment. So this video of me dancing with my core members went super viral and it increased the California Conservation Corps recruitment by like a thousand percent or something wow. crazy. And, um, and, 
and people started getting interested in conservation. And I knew at that point, like if I really wanted to save any animals, you know, this, you know, if I wanted to help people connect to nature, if I wanted to get native plants in the ground that I had to put myself in front of this camera because people like seeing me there. And so I did it and I've been doing it ever since because it's the most solutionary thing that I could do. And me and my partner in Jumpstart Nature, uh, Michael Hawk, him and I are both like, we would love just to be like old school, like Alexander Von Humboldt type naturalists where we go out into the woods and you don't see us for years. Like because we're both so interested in life, like all the biodiversity, all the things. But um, I could spend my time looking at them and having some immediate gratification, but I would walk away knowing, knowing that those things might disappear in my great niece's lifetimes because people, not enough people spoke up for him. So I'm, that's what I'm doing. And thank God people like watching my videos because I want them to plant native plants and I want them to volunteer at wildlife care centers and I want them to dance outside and I want them to take them, their kids on hikes. And so I'll do whatever it takes to get them to do it. That's such a wonderful message. Almost anything. (laughs) Well, do you feel since your time in conservation, you know, and this is a conversation we've had multiple times and we we've done uh, a rooted discussion on women in ecology and we've had the outdoor equity Alliance on, and we just had a great conversation with Camille Dungy. Um, do you feel that you're seeing more diversity within the conservation field? Like when we started, it was predominantly white male dominated. And then, yeah, you see more females, but it's we're just starting to see the diversity in color of people. At, and it's we, we try to speak about it all all the time just to bring awareness to it, to to try to get more people to enjoy it, to to want to choose that as a career. Yes, I see it big time. Um and I've been, that's been one of my <clears throat> major campaign issues, my whole, like something I've been campaigning for my whole entire life, because I grew up in this multiracial area. And then I moved just a few hours North into the forest, you know, of California and, and everybody looked like me. And then when, um, except for the indigenous people. And then the, um, I went to a conservation group when I was like 18 or 19 and it was about the spotted owl. Spotted owl just got listed. And so I was like, I want to be involved. So I, w- I went to this conservation group and I was looking around the room and I was the youngest person by like 40 years. Okay. And everybody was white. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, everybody in here is white and gray. We better hurry up and say the spotted owl before you guys all die or it's going to be too late. You know? And, and so then I was like, like this group has an expiration date. And so I was like, I was like, all right, we got to do something. So I started bringing my, fellow core members. And this is what, you know, back when I was 18, 19 and a lot of them were like, Griff, I don't want to go with you. Cause I'm, I don't want to be one of the only three black people. And, and like, we all showed up together. It's just like, they stare at us and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what a huge problem this is that like people aren't getting involved because they feel socially uncomfortable because of like the little microaggressions that they would get from older white folks and stuff like that. It just made it uncomfortable. And that's when I realized that conservation has its roots in you know, I mean, in California and in the Redwoods, uh, conservation preservation has its roots in eugenicists. You know, mm-hmm. the, it was eugenicists mm-hmm. who started, you know, our Redwood, say the Redwood movement largely. And um, some of that stuff uh, has thrived. Like some of the culture has is still in our conservation groups. 
and you can still see it still white and old. It's still like a lot of conservation groups, you know, didn't even think about including anybody else. You know, it was like, uh, it was like an elite club. Like we're educated, we're rich and we're conservationists (laughs) and, and come have a glass of wine and see this presentation on the, uh, asters of the California dunes. But like, that's not going to save the planet. And, that's not going to help. Like if, if conservation is a, is a elite club, that's ridiculous, you know? So I have seen it change so much in my lifetime. It is very, very inspiring. I'm in California. So maybe you haven't seen it where you're at, but where I'm at, it's like, and it's definitely an age thing. So like pretty much the biologists, the firefighters, the, all that stuff under 40 is if you look at it, even under 30, it's very encouraging, very yes. encouraging. You still see all your all, all your old white placeholders in the different organizations and stuff, but um, it's the next generation that's going to diversify us just by by who they are, yeah. you know. So it's like it's not going to be a thing. It's going to stop being a thing in a generation or two. Like we're not going to fight to diversify conservation groups because they are diversifying by default. That's so, awesome. and it's wonderful and it's so helpful and it's really made the movement stronger, uh, more articulate. It's just really been a blessing. We saw even COVID played a factor with uh, the New Jersey Native Plant Society, which was a, a more of a smaller group, older group. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you and, try- and I'll add because I was, I would go to a lot of these meetings, and I was definitely the for a long, long probably I'm 34 now, so for a long time I was the youngest one there. I'm not anymore. Um, <laughs> but I've been going since I was like in my early twenties, but, but it was, yeah, you did not have a lot of diversity amongst that group. No. And not only that, like you had all these, a small group of people trying to keep it running. So they're all taking on so much and they needed yeah. help. They needed new blood in it. And COVID they said, well, I can't, I'm tra- trying to remember how much it went it's from like, like 300 members in the state to all, nearly a thousand. It's probably over a thousand now. And, um, a lot of it was just some new ideas that, you had they basically did a lot of stuff over Zoom and were bringing in different speakers from across the region to kind of promote these topics and they'd get uh, like Doug Tallamy is one so he'd come on and give a, a Zoom presentation for him and at the end they're like well you can become a member of the association if you pay thirty bucks <laughs> a lot of people are like well that's really not a lot of money to to get this kind of uh, this kind of uh, education out of it so and and they've mm. even started a podcast that that incorporates nature and poetry mm-hmm. uh and and those connections which we, so we keep forgetting to plug we yeah. said that we would and we keep we'll forgetting. plug it on the next yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um back to the redwoods because i know we kind of well are there any videos of young griff rapping that that are going to go viral do you have any any break dancing any videos, videos? Of me rapping? yeah you know there are a couple they're on vhs <laughs> yeah. uh and and uh they're in a box somewhere and maybe one day I'll bust those out. But yeah, there's a couple of me beatboxing. So I used to, I used to be box. I used oh, to that's, do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I can't a, do it so much anymore. That my, was awesome. That kind of, older. that reminded me of Bismarck either. That was pretty good. See, Dougie Fresh. Yeah. You know, I was into it. Awesome. So I kind of wanted to get back to the Redwoods. We're, we're based on the East coast and one of the things that our listeners always say is even though we're based on the East Coast, California is probably our third biggest market. And mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, for, for a lot of our listeners that have never been to California, have never been to the Redwoods, why are the Redwoods so important, not only to you, but just to ecology? 
There's so many different ways to answer that question that, um, do you want to hear it from a, like, which, which perspective you want to hear it from? We can, we can hear it from all the perspectives. Um, so let's just do, let's do climate, uh, change, uh, and stuff, you know, and climate change is such an interesting topic to me because I didn't want to believe it. And I still don't want to believe it. It's lame. It's, it's totally not cool. Um, you know, that we're having to even worry about this. But one of the ways that I deal with climate change now is I tell people, you're like, I asked you about redwoods, where are you going? Um, but one of the ways I talk about climate change to people now is like, forget about who created it, forget about climate has always been changing. Yes, that's how we know what's, what it's going to be like. But just think of it this way, like we don't even have to argue about it. If we had the power to adjust the world temperature with a giant thermostat, wouldn't we do it? Wouldn't we keep it the way it is the last 10,000 years? Because last 10,000 years have been very unusual and perfect for our species. So if we had the power, wouldn't we keep the thermostat here? And if I told you that we have, we have the <clears throat> knowledge and technology to keep the climate as it is instead of letting it get worse for our great grandkids, would you help me? And the answer is yes. If you understood that this would help your great grandkid thrive, you would help me. Okay. So we don't have to argue about it anymore. <laughs> Let's just move forward and keep our carbon levels the way that they are the best for our species. And one of the ways by doing that is to help us restore redwoods with Redwoods Rising, redwoodsrising.org. Because redwoods can, they can sequester. Like when you look at a giant redwood tree, you are looking at carbon sequestration. It's 250 tons of carbon. Redwood trees are eritarians. If they were made out of dirt, there would be a corresponding hole right next to them that was 350 feet deep, okay? <clears throat> so they are eritarians. They, they are made up of some nutrients and water, of course, but they are eritarians. They're carbonivores. They're eating carbon. They are giant pillars of carbon. And that's why they are the carbon sequestering champions of the world because... They are doing this and we've cut down over 95% of them. That was a, that's not how you want to operate your thermostat. you like, so when we're now accelerating the growth of these trees by thinning them out because, because of something horrible that happened that I could tell you about. Okay. And then we're, we're helping them grow faster or larger because it's the big trees that sequester the most carbon. It's not a, a million baby trees. It's like a couple thousand big giant trees. They're the ones that are storing the most carbon and coast red would store more carbon than anybody else. And people are like, are you sure? Because the giant sequoia is bigger, like more voluminous. But when you add all the reiterations and the leaves and how many trees per acre, uh, the coast redwood forest is per acre, the carbon sequestration champion of the world. For so that's one reason why they should be special to people. Um, they're all, yeah. So do you have any questions about that before I, go I, through a I have one stuff? question before you go on. So for, for restoring, if you were growing more redwoods, is it more advantageous to have them closer together and let them get tall and, and straight or to give them more space? Is it, which they need which, more space. Okay. So redwoods, um, redwoods get tall first and then they get fat kind of like what happened to me. And so like they'll grow to like 300 feet tall in 150 years and then they'll start wide, then start getting wide. Okay. And redwood trees are very fast growing trees. They're one of the fastest growing evergreen or conifer trees in the world when they have full sun and, 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 and full light, which is why I tell people never plant them in your yard. 
Um, it's the one native plant that I do not encourage you to plant in your yard. In fact, don't do it. Don't plant a redwood in your yard. I'll tell you why in a minute. But um, no, I'll tell you why right now. Redwoods, even though they're hundreds of tons, uh, their roots only go down 12 feet. And they travel underneath the topsoil and they wrap around each other. And that's how they hold, they hold each other up. So when you go to the visitor center and all the visitor centers around here sell redwood seedlings, I wish they would stop <laughs> because these people go home and they plant them in their yard. And then the roots are like, you know, I, sometimes I, I did a video where I do it at songs like the roots creep. Yeah. They get your pipes and foundation because that's what they do. They'll wrap around your pipes. They'll wrap, they'll, destroy your sidewalk or foundation. And then they get really tall, really fast. So in 50 years, that tree could be a hundred feet tall. Okay. In 20 years, it could be 50 feet tall, 24 feet. It's got enough sun and, and water. And then it falls down. It's taking your pipes and your foundation with it. Then it's going to fall on your house and Lord knows what it will take with it at that point. So don't plant a single redwood tree. They need to be in a forest. Um, okay. All right. So I went on a tangent. All right. So it, the, the first perspective was climate change okay. for why they're important. And then you were going okay. to oh, switch. You. Yeah. You were going to switch to another, another perspective. Um, there are cultural keystone species for some tribes. So especially the Yurok people. And, and I always believe in indigenous people telling their own stories. So go to yurokTribe.org or go to visit yurokcountry.com. Uh, and you can come to Sumeg State Park in California. And we have an indigenous village, a traditional indigenous village where there was an indigenous village for since time immemorial. And you can get tours from Yurok people. Like I, I definitely think that those stories from should come from indigenous people. But something they share with the public that I will tell you about is that the Yurok people believe basically that the Redwoods saved them. And um, they have a story about a, a bird and you should look it up and have from a Yurok storyteller, but it's about a bird who got refuge uh, from a redwood tree. And that's kind of how they found this place. And they speak, I think it's Algonquin. So they speak a language from the East coast. So they say that they came over here like eight to 12,000 years ago. The other tribes here say that they were created here. So the Yurok kind of have a unique story that ends up with the Redwood taking care of them. So I would encourage you to uh, pursue a Yurok storyteller. If you want to hear that whole story. Do you, super interesting. Do you feel that hearing those stories and your interaction with, the local indigenous people have changed your perspective on the redwoods and how you feel about, oh. or even conservation for that matter. Oh, my whole entire being, my whole life. Um, definitely from working with native America, I've been working with native America, several different tribes, like my whole adult life because I've been in conservation and you can't work in conservation in Northern California without working with indigenous people. So it's like, um, they're there, they're there in every project, like they're, they're there. Um, in almost every project because it's their land and our tribes are still here and they were contacted much later than the East coast. So like the Yurok and Taliban stuff, they have their language and their customs and their traditions and their spirituality. So it's really interesting to, and they, they look at the land so different for me that I can't have never been able to put myself in their shoes. I'm Irish American. Um, I do know a little bit about my Irish indigenous connections to salmon and, and oak trees. And so I am able to relate to them with their connection to salmon oak trees. In fact, they call themselves the salmon acorn people. A lot of the tribes around here, but they see the, they see the world in such a different way that I just can't put my, my mind, I can't wrap my mind around it, but it has helped me a lot. Um, thinking about salmon as a family member thinking about things as family members and like learning from them just, and, 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 and sometimes I'll say like, we need to manage this for blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the indigenous people will look at me and they'll be like, God, that's such a, 
colonial way of looking at the land is in management, like let's have a relationship with it instead. And so, and that was kind of like a ding. So I kind of see myself now having a relationship with, and it's really made me want to reclaim my own culture, my Irish culture, because in Ireland right now, my dream is to have an exchange because Ireland's finally doing salmon habitat restoration. Mm -hmm. And I would love for them to come out here and learn from the Yurok because the Yurok people do a lot of the work on Redwood Rising projects. Okay. Um, they do a lot of the work, especially salmon habitat restoration. They do a lot of that. And I would love for the Irish to come learn from the Iraq and for the Iraq to go back to Ireland and teach them. And I would love this to all be a documentary. I would love that. Um, but that's what it's done for me. It's made me think about where I'm indigenous to, my connections to like my family's connections to indigenous places, also this land too. But like just working with indigenous people has made me, uh, question everything that I was ever taught and learned. Well, that's I I know the the first time I read Breeding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, this is incredible, and it's making me think of everything in a different way. But it also, like like you were like, that's her connection. What's my connection? I'm like mm-hmm. like, and that was like my big thing is like really like, what's my connection and where am I moving forward with this? So it was yeah. a real game changer for me that book. Yeah. And I'm seventh generation Californian and I feel like a connection to this place, but um, working with indigenous people, I'm always very much aware that I'm not indigenous here. I live here now. I'm going to treat it like I was indigenous. Um, but this land has shaped these people in a way that I, I, I haven't been here long enough for it to shape me the same way. And also like my, my ancestors were scoundrels. Like, you know, they weren't trying to have a relationship with anything here. They were trying to make money off of it. So it's uh, it's it's quite my generation. We're lucky because we get to hybridize the different ways of thinking now with like, you know, global access to different philosophies. And I feel like I'm much more healthier than my ancestors were. And so like while I apologize for them, I can't put myself in their shoes either. I can't put myself in indigenous perspective, but I definitely can't relate to my great great grandparents and their perspective on life either. That's totally foreign to me. Um, because it was just so hardcore, like, and, and, and not balanced in any way, shape or form. Yeah. It's, I, I look at, and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, just the connection that my wife has, you know, I grew up in a, in a planned suburb, a Philadelphia suburb in the seventies. My family was originally from the city of Philadelphia. Um, and then I look at my wife who grew up on a small farm in Southern Poland you know, and I'll walk out in the backyard and she's just laying in the middle of the lawn and I'm like, what's going on? She goes, just grounding, just connecting, just spending nice. time. You know, this is – she was like, you know, I spent my childhood foraging for mushrooms and climbing trees for nuts and, and fruit and that's just what I always think – she was saying that's what I always think about. Like I always think about those simpler times and that connection with nature and I miss it. She She's yeah. constantly trying to, to find that. When I went to Russia, I, I, it was nice for me to see white folks that were indigenous and 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 had and had relationships with things like the indigenous people here had. It was really good for me to see that because almost all the white folks that I've seen have all been colon, you know, like descendants of colonists. So it was nice to see uh, indigenous white folks. And 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 I remember one. Oh, I was in Russia with Earth Island Institute. I was sent there to be an ecotourism um, okay. advisor. And so I was there for, I was in Siberia for a month in Moscow for two weeks. But, uh, I remember I saw this mushroom and I was like, wow, it's beautiful. And I go, is it edible? And they're like, yeah. And I, and I reached down cause I was like, oh, we should make it. And they're like, wait, no, 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 no. You got to take it and you got to soak it for 48 hours. And then you got to chop it up and dry it out. Then you have to freeze it. And then you got to set it in front of the moon. And then you got to pour some vigor. And I'm like, it's poisonous. <laughs> 
it's poisonous. <laughs> but but they knew it so well and it was just it was a mind bender for me to just to, it was really good for me to see indigenous white folks you know that weren't exploiting their land it was great that's i my my wife the other day i was telling tom she picked mushrooms in the yard saying these are edible and i'm like oh okay you you know that she goes yeah i put my tongue on the other side and it didn't tingle so there i'm like well, you're basing it on that i'm like we've had this talk with sam thayer he was saying you can't yeah that's yeah. not like a broad <laughs> a broad yeah, statement don't try that with the death angels no, yeah no, no. and she was like well, I know these ones are good. I know from my childhood. I'm like, but that was in Poland. Like, this is New Jersey. Yeah. And I, I got home yesterday, and she's like, I just want to let you know I'm alive. I feel good. <laughs> like, I ate them. I was like, all right. <laughs> I'm like, there's no reason for both of us to go down. Like, it should only be one yeah. of us. If <laughs> yeah. I actually just uh, found a, a lion's mane the other day, and I was like, I know this is okay, but I've never eaten one before. Should I stick my tongue on it and just see if it's okay? <laughs> Use the Agatha method of, yeah. of uh, mushroom testing. <laughs> mm-hmm. so if, yeah, I'm, I'm scared of mushrooms. Yeah. I am too, because yeah. there's so much I don't know. Tom's brother is not yeah. as scared. But he's also had his, his run-ins. Nothing too serious, just a, a day and a half stuck oh. in the bathroom. <laughs> Those kind, of, those kind of things. But, <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So no, it, that's actually a funny story because he it was uh, honey mushrooms, which are edible, but you have to cook them. And um, he didn't cook them. And he didn't cook. Yeah, he just taught, kind of made a risotto and tossed them in at the end. So they got a little bit of heat, but not a lot. And then they were he and his his now wife were pretty sick for a day. And um, mm. and I was like, when you Google the mushroom, the first thing it says is it's got to be cooked. You can't eat it raw. I'm like, how did you yeah. not? And he's like, oh, they all say that. <laughs> Most of them are fine if you uh, don't do it. But they all say you got to cook them. So, yeah. Bet you he cooks them now. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, he definitely does. Yeah. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. All right, so another sidetrack. Ireland aside, if you could do restoration work anywhere, is there a specific area in the world that you would want to see and do restoration work? Ireland. Ireland aside. No Ireland. Because oh, I know – yeah, Ireland? I did say Ireland aside because <laughs> yeah. I knew you would say Ireland. Oh, Wales or Scotland. Okay. Um, probably somewhere in Europe um, where I had some kind of like genetic connection. Uh, just because I am fascinated with history and ancestry and genetics, I would love to go someplace where I, I, my genes are indigenous too. Uh, just because I'm so inspired by like the Yurok and the Talawa, you know, and the Wailaki and the Sinkyon around here and the Wiat, Hoopa, Karuk. Um, and I want to feel like them. I guess I just, <laughs> I want to, I want to feel like that. I want to, I want to know that my great, 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 great grandpa you know, was here fishing and I'm helping bring back the fish or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's maybe that's too romantic. But other than that, California, like I love restoration here. I really like dunes restoration because, you know, you pull a mofla. It's a, an arid area. It's a European beach grass. You pull that and like, boom, the next year there's 27 species of really cool native plants and 13 species of really cool native bees and a couple super endangered ones that came back just because you pulled grass 
And that's the restoration I've done the most uh, is beach is dunes restoration. And then the snowy plovers come back and it's just like, you get to see things. I love that. Maybe it's because I have elemental P or whatever it is um, that I like to see. I like that quick comeback restoration. So that's, you know, dunes restoration, uh, salmon habitat restoration. I like those kinds of things. Redwood rising to we're we're doing several different types of restoration. Okay. And um, the forest thinning, you know, cause let me just tell you this redwood rising story before I run out of time. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a redwood rising story folks. Um, so when my ancestors came here, became here with dollar signs and manifest destiny and, um, and with the philosophy of dominion over the world and we were here to prove it. And so we did, moved the indigenous people out of the way and weird up all like we as in salmon weirs basically caught all the salmon poisoned all the grizzlies poisoned all the wolves cut down all the trees made money made money 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 ravaged this area there's like 4.6 percent of the old growth redwood forest left even less of the monterey pine forest and the tan oak forest like redwood forest isn't the only one that got devastated in california there's other forest types that got it even worse so uh, and you guys are from the east coast so what y'all did back there was like (laughs) so there are no old growth forests yeah Yeah, i know right like one half a percent or something but anyway so um after we clear cut and we didn't used to have protections, AKA regulations in the 40s, 50s and 60s and in, in, in 1870s all the way up until recently. So um, we logged all the way to the down of the stream. We used, we used to dam up the streams and log the forest and get a bunch of logs in there. And then we'd blow up the dam and they'd all go down in a giant like tidal wave. It's called splash jams. And if there was native Americans fishing, they got destroyed. If there was poor white people, uh, living on the river, they got destroyed, and these logs would come out to the bays, and then we'd round them all up. And then after we logged, and <clears throat> no one used to replant, uh, and but then once we got helicopters and stuff, we started aerial seeding, and they would cover, and they were, and they weren't aerial seeding with redwoods or aerial seeding with different species because they didn't appreciate the value of redwoods at the time or something. I don't know, but they aerial seeded with dug firs that were covered in rodenticides. So imagine being a squirrel and getting your whole world uh, clear cut. And then there's this brief time where all these broadleaf trees are, you know, broadleaf bushes are coming out and trees. So there's tons of food, you know, there's hazelnuts and there's huckleberries and there's blackberries. And you're like, woohoo, this isn't so bad. We lost our forest, but there's lots of food. And the biodiversity would actually increase. And then we would come with our helicopters and planes and we'd spray 2,4-D all over the West. And that's a broadleaf defoliant. And it would take all, it would kill all those berry and nut trees, all those larval host plants, okay? And then we'd come back and we would aerial seed with Dugford seeds that were covered in rodenticides. So if you were a squirrel and you had survived these changes, then you would eat these poison uh, seeds and you'd become a bomb yourself. And so when the owls would eat you, they would die. When the hawks would eat you, they would die. When the coyotes and the foxes would eat you, they would die. When the badgers eat you, they died. And so that's how we, and, and then when we logged, um, besides splash dams, we would just pull the logs down the streams. We would bury the streams and use them as roads because in late summer in California, uh, the water gets very low and you could bury streams and then you could use them as roads. It was the easiest place to do it. We destroyed these watersheds using fire, like poison, 
burial and, and then suppressing fires. So then we suppressed fires. So Native American fires weren't coming in there. So these forests grew up so thick, these dog hair thickets, so thick that there was no understory. So there was no native bees and there was no birds. There was no songbirds because there's nothing to feed their babies. And so it became this new type of desert, this desert of darkness underneath the canopy of these poisonous trees we planted. They're no longer poisonous at this point. So then when they would catch on fire, they'd burn all the way to the ground. And what would we do when that happened? We would aerial seed again. So Redwood Rising, we go in there and we remove some of this biomass. We take out some of these trees and this lets light to the ground. And so this lets other types of understory plants come. And this is great because in the old growth forest, these are now islands and the native bees, you know, native bees don't move very far. We got 1400 species of native bees in California. They are not jumping on the bus. They're not getting on a plane going from, you know, island of old growth to island of old growth. They have to fly there themselves. And you're like, they're bees. They can fly. No, they don't go very far. So if you have, if, the, if these old growth islands are surrounded by these dog hair thickets, little things, salamanders, reptiles, small mammals, bees, they can't leave. They'll starve to death. And so you get these, uh, these migration barriers. So when we go through, we daylight those streams, we unbury those streams. Okay. And the light gets back in and the fish come right back. Mm -hmm. Um, When we thin out those trees, they're resilient for fire. So when fire comes through, it doesn't kill all the trees. Okay. Some of them survive to keep growing and then understory plants grow. And so now you're getting butterflies and you're getting bees and you're getting birds and you're getting mammals. You're getting everything back and we can do it. We were a force of nature when we destroyed this place and we can be a force of nature when we heal this place. That, you know, as you're telling that story, I'm like, wow, just think of all the specialist bees that may have been lost that we don't mm-hmm. even know about that that existed Never there. Got discovered. Or, or yeah, or, or or butterflies or, you know, I was thinking of how Xerxes Society started around a a, a table talking mm-hmm. about the, the demise of the Xerxes butterfly. Yeah, butterfly, I know. You know, and it's just when when those types of restorations happen, are you finding that there's still some – some native seed in the seed bank that once it's daylighted, that it's coming back. It is. Oh, especially here. We don't have to plant. Um, We do plant some redwoods trees in some places um, because usually redwoods are really good about stump sprouting. That's how come you can never tell how old they are. Cause you could have one stock that's 2000 years old and then you cut it down. It re-sprouts and grows for 2000 more years. And you cut that one down. The rings still say it's 2000, but really it's four. So we don't know how old redwoods get, but in some places when the stumps are really old, they don't sprout as readily. And so in those places, we don't have the stump sprouts to depend on where it was like really, really old trees. And so we end up planting there, but um, yeah, I forgot what I was talking about. Uh, seed bank. Oh, so yeah. So when we daylight streams, all, we don't plant anything. And the next year there's sedges, there's a couple native grasses, there's sorrel, there's ferns, there's salmonberry and thimbleberry and native blackberry coming back in and Himalayan blackberry coming in too. <laughs> um, Cause it gets there yeah. via a feathered booty. But um, we try to pull those out when we can. Um, but yeah, it, it comes back. What? There's a native seed bank. What yeah, are, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool to hear. And uh, and it's not on nearly on the same scale. We had bought a Christmas tree farm and then took all the Christmas trees out to put in the native seed production. But there was a patch that we didn't, and we're doing this quail habitat project now. And, uh, Fran, I think I was telling you this the other day, is we pulled out just – I pulled out the Christmas trees in this one spot and then let it go to see what would happen. And they've probably been there at least 25 years. And all of a sudden you have – milkweed coming back and a lot of invasive oh, wow. stuff too but it's just like oh 
who knew that that would have lasted that long? And now you're talking about it in more than 25 years, in, in some cases, mm-hmm. hundreds of years. So that's awesome. That's oh, really yes, cool. These are fascinating. Yeah. I guess, you know, now that you're talking about that, I'm like, there's probably some seeds, that were, some plants that were growing there. Seeds don't last this yeah. seed bank as long, but like would be interesting to get back in place. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's really cool to see that happen. Thank God for seed banks. I oh, agree. Yeah. yeah. Well, even with the, the woods that Tom's talking about, they, they were daylighting it a little bit and all the trout lily that started coming oh, up yeah. and all the spring yeah. ephemerals. It was just such a – so wild to go over there and see like, oh, my God, look at this. Look at – this is this is crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's things that you don't think of that are native to this area because those areas just don't exist anymore. So to- <laughs> Yeah, but it's your baseline, yeah. 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 Um, are there is there one or, or a few restorations or successful restorations that uh, you can think of that you've been a part of that you're particularly proud of? Oh, most definitely uh, Sacramento River Project. So um, when I worked for the Nature Conservancy, the Sacramento River riparian area and San Joaquin and, San, and the San Joaquin River and the Sacramento River drain the great central valley and california has an amazing geologic history is why so many of our plants are adapted for like periodic disasters because the landform changes here so much but um we cut down 97 percent of the riparian we meaning colonists and descendants of colonists cut down 97 percent of um the riparian forest which was where most of california's wildlife was and the nature conservancy would buy like ag land that wasn't performing well, like unproductive ag land and we would restore it. And I was 23 and I was out there planning, you know, all winter long, um, taking classes at night, just gone through a heartbreak. Um, so I was out there sad planting trees, me, me in the rain by myself a lot of the time. And, um, and I planted all these areas and I went back and did like some bird surveys and stuff in them years later, but then I didn't see them for like 15, 20 years. And I was on a fire coming back from a fire with my crew. In fact, it was that the fire in paradise campfire that killed all those people. That was yeah. the last fire. That was the last fire I went on as a firefighter. And I was driving my crew back. We were just doing camp support. We were, we weren't out there fighting fire. We were just like supporting all the chaos that was going on. Um, including our Trump and Arnold Schwarzenegger visits. But, um, we, I, I, I was telling him about as we're driving down the Sacramento river, I was telling him about how he's planted there and like, can we see one? And I was like, Oh, there's one coming up that I haven't seen, you know, since I planted when I was 23. And so we pulled over and I couldn't believe riparian trees grow so fast. And they were like, we don't believe you planted these. These trees are a hundred years old. I'm like, no, they're not. I planted them when I, when I was 23. So they're only five or 10 years old or 30. <laughs> years old. So, and um, it was beautiful and there was bird singing and it was wonderful. And there was conwood trees and sycamore trees that were giant. And there was like so much wildlife there. And I remember that place and I could tell a long story about that place, but I won't. But when I first got out there, the nature control nature conservancy told me they're like, this place gets sabotaged. Our, our irrigation gets sabotaged all the time because the neighbor here hates us. Cause he thinks we're a bunch of commie pinkos, you know? <laughs> and he came out this old dude, like 80 came out and he had this hat that said pops on it. And he came out on this quad and I, it was like my first, you know, day or whatever getting oriented. And he came out here and he like chastised them and burnt them and all, all these like nature conservancy hippie folks. Yeah. And they just put their heads down and took it. Like they couldn't even deal with him. 
And he reminded me of my people, you know, like my family. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my family's like that, you know. And so he turned it on me and I was like, he, he was like, and how would you like it if I, and I like, you wouldn't do that, Pops, you're a sweetheart. And he just looked at me. <laughs> And I went home and I told my grandfather about it. I was like, grandpa, you need to come get your boy, man. He's doing too much. (laughs) (laughs) And my grandpa says, no, you're doing too much. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're out there with your long hair and your beard and your tie dye shirt, your moccasins and all you weirdos are out there trying to tell this guy that what you're doing is good for the future. He's like, he can't relate to you. If you really want to, if you really want to change people's mind, you can't look like that. And I looked and I had beads on and long hair. And so I cut my hair, I shaved my face, I grabbed some of my grandpa's shirt and I asked for that, that restoration site to be mine. And they're like, sure, yeah, you do it. You go ahead, you're big enough to fight that 80-year-old man. And um, <clears throat> he came out there and he didn't recognize me from previous because now I look like him. And, <clears throat> and I did what my grandpa told me to do. And I said, how long have you lived out here? And he's like, all my life. And I was like, was there salmon to fish for here? And he's like, oh yeah, there was so many salmon, blah, 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 blah. I was like, did you hunt around here? And he's like, yeah, I hunted around here, blah, blah, blah. I was like, did it look like this when you were a kid? And he's like, no. And I knew it didn't because I knew all that area got converted in the last 20, 30 years. And he started telling me about everything. And I found out that he built wood duck boxes and put them up places because he'd noticed the wood ducks disappeared. And Pretty soon I was telling them, like, we're just trying to turn this back into what it was like when you were a kid. And all of a sudden, our pump never got sabotaged again. Our irrigation lines never got sabotaged again. He would come tell me stories where I was, when I was planting trees. He turned into my best ally. And that was a life-changing, worldview-changing experience for me. And I, um, and I took that to heart. And that's how we got to do restoration is we have to be relevant to people. That's how we get people interested in native plants. We have to be relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't come in and, and try to, you know, put our trip on them and then, you know, feel married to our trip. Like I'm going to have long hair and beads and be out here anyway. You know, like I was in his country. I was in his area. I was on his ground and I needed his help. And I did what I needed to do to get it. And there's big, tall, giant trees and yellow bill cuckoo's nest in there as a result. Not that I'm the hero, my grandpa's the hero in the story, but this is what conservationists need to think about. You need to get out of your own way and be relevant to people because we're trying to save endangered species. We're not trying to save your fashions. Yeah, that's a, That makes me think of something that Tom says all the time is that, you know, they may not, you know, the person that you're talking with may not care about native plants, but there's something that they care about. That yeah. relates back to native plants mm-hmm. somehow. And you were saying, yeah. all right, like you mentioned ducks. It's like, all right, maybe you don't care about native plants. Do you care about ducks? Do you care about hunting? Do you, what, you know, do you care about birding? What do you care about? Because these all factor in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, a lot of our, uh, our nursery customers, um, when, especially when they're doing habitat restoration in like inner cities, uh, of, yes. they'll get like major, they'll do big focus groups with, with residents in the city and like, Hey, we're we're bringing pizza. We're having dinner. Don't you don't have to worry about cooking it yourselves. And just bring trying to bring in as much of the communities they can, so they can give feedback. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and now this is places where it hasn't seen natural habitat in like hundreds of years sometimes. Yeah. And um, but they're like, oh well, we want we we need to create this habitat for uh, so we'd have a softer green edge and not just a, a wall. But um, what do you want? And like so there was I remember one of the people was saying. Uh, oh yeah, well, I, I need to be able to like push my stroller down the street. So you can't put the columns there. Cause then I'm never, I'm never going to be able to get the stroller down the street. Exactly. And it was just like that kind of input 
got the community, even if they didn't care about the, the plant aspect of it, got them involved and they took ownership in it instead of saying, oh, they're just doing something crazy over here again and, and getting in our way. Yeah. It was like there was no graffiti. There's no issues with that place because everyone kind of said, oh, this is part of our community now. So, yeah, it's because yeah. if, especially if it's coming from them like, yeah. and they have input and it's like not everybody goes outdoors the same. And so like like our campgrounds are set up for like 60s nuclear families. Um, but in California now, <laughs> yeah. we a, a lot of us are Latino. Most of us in California are Latino. And so um, including much of my family now is Latino. And um, Latinos have closer family. Like, you know, you take grandma and aunt and uncle with you places. And, I, you know, I, I hope that. I hope that rubs off on the rest of us. Yeah. But it's like, you know, my family definitely it is, but like, um, so you don't want to have one picnic table at a campsite. It doesn't work for Californians anymore, you know, because we don't go out like that. We go with our grandmas and aunts and blah, 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 not just Latinos, but like, that's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it, it, it's a thing we should be encouraging everybody to do. So it's like you, you want to, people are going to be interested if they have input. And so if you're trying to save something in a watershed, that's 90% Latino or 90% young people or 90% whatever, and you're, t- and, but your group doesn't look like them, whatever project you're working on may be doomed to fa- to failure. So like you definitely want to get people to have ownership. And one of the best stories I've ever heard of that, I, I worked with this group called Streamminders, which was the Four Winds Indian School. So several different tribes and then some uh, non-Indigenous Americans. And they, we were trying to stop this Bidwell Park in Chico from getting destroyed because had some salmon in it. And kids would go throw rocks and kill the salmon and they would girdle the trees and carve on the trees. And so we started having little kids go out and do these, you know, this classroom of second and third graders go out and plant a tree on the Creek, you know, just like one or two trees and they plant them. And then we do salmon in the classroom with them and they'd raise these eggs into salmon. And then they put these, when the salmon were ready to be released, they put them in these cups and they would go out to the area they planted and they would put, they would dump the fish in the Creek where they planted these plants. And what do you think happened? There's salmon in that creek again. There's much less um, uh, vandalism, like because now being a steward of that creek is cultural. Yeah. It has become cultural. And so that's what you want to do when you do restoration in urban areas when it involves people. So stewarding that becomes part of that community's culture. Yeah, that's a fantastic that story. That is a fantastic story. And, and you have to have, you know, and that's when. Tom was mentioning urban cities. It was Johnny Keyspe from the Nature Conservancy. Yeah, he's like, yeah. it's just having those talks, having those conversations and trying to get everyone involved so that they feel a part of it. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, we say that all the time. Like, like nature doesn't have to be somewhere that you go to. It's you open your door. That's nature. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like Homegrown National Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doug Ptolemy's group that he started, um, co-founder of um, with Michelle, and they have a really good TikTok and stuff. But uh I forgot the guy's name, the social media guy. I feel bad, but he, uh, he really presses container gardens for balconies and porches. Yeah. And this worked so well for people, like, because people love seeing butterflies fly to their third story balcony and lay eggs and their plants. And so like, you can do nature anywhere. And that's Doug Tallamy to me was the, the game changer with, uh, bringing nature home where just to put it in a way that, that people it would be that aha moment where oh you know if you want or if you want chickadees you know this is how many lepidoptera they have to feed their young and what hosts that many lepidoptera okay here it's a white oak that hosts more than anything else and it really just the amount of people 
we would because we're wholesale, but you get homeowners just going, you know, where I can find white oak or black cherry trees, yeah. and just thinking that way, like, oh, that's how that works. I never. Yeah. He just put it in a way that most people could grasp or hadn't been thinking. Yeah, you know, I, while you're saying that, I, I, the thing popped into my head. It was like Ptolemy made rewilding accessible. He made mm-hmm. restoration accessible. And um, that was really powerful. So you can rewild in the middle of the city, you know, because once you plant some larval host plants and they come, you have rewilded your ports, your balcony, your place of worship, you know. Yeah, your school year. I agree, and that's John McGee from McGee's Designs that we talked about earlier. He was talking about HOAs just getting young kids involved with with monarch caterpillars and butterfly weed. Yeah. And he goes, "I would go into yards, and kids were teaching me about monarch caterpillars." And he goes, "That was the difference. That that made the difference, and made you know it just made it a little more accessible." Well, you know what my dream is, and so I'm going to tell you my dream because I want to hear. There might be someone out here listening. Um, I'm way, way, way into certified backyard habitat, schoolyard habitat, urban, urban rewilding too. I'm like way out here in the middle of nowhere right now talking to you. I don't have any neighbors for miles, but I'm way into urban restoration. And um, what I would love to see is like a corridor planning for a neighborhood. So like, um, so like maybe you guys could do this Pinelands nursery. So uh, this section over here is for this neighborhood because we know that, these migratory birds will land around your guys' spot and that they're going to be wanting to eat these kinds of fruits and nuts. And so we're encouraging you to plant this. So selling plants uh, to people in neighborhoods specifically for what migrates through that area. Um, you're, you know, you're in a monarch migration corridor. So you're going to plant all these plants. You're in a pine siskin, you know, wintering ground. So you should plant these, but like connecting the wildlife to um, the plant. And that's why I like native plant finder because they did like a, you can and calscape.org because you could like look up plants by the butterfly, you know? So if, if we, if we helped people understand which migration corridors they're in or which ecosystems they're in so they can plant accordingly, because we want, we don't want people to plant native plants and walk away. Be like, yeah. okay, I have my green props in my yard now, and they're native, so I can check this good boy box. <laughs> um, we want, um, we want yards to actually be contributing to the thrivability of wildlife. And so, if you know what migrates, and you can be ready for them with the right berries. And then you see that bird in your yard, your yard just became alive. You know, your yard became part of something much bigger. And I tell people like Redwood Rising up here, we got, you know, 4.6% of the uh, old growth. And I'll show them a bird and, and I'll go, I'll be like, this is a Wilson Warbler. And you're not in a zoo. This bird leaves here. And guess where it goes? <laughs> it flies over your house. And, and, and is it going to starve to death? Is it going to strike a window? Is it going to get killed by a bird? Is it going to circle your house over and over again? Because you got every light in the world on your roof. Like what's going to happen to my bird that's living here in the Redwood Forest when it goes by your house? Can you help me? If you want to help the animals and the wildlife, if you want to help the wildlife in the Redwoods, uh, plant native plants in your yard in San Francisco and L.A., you know, because it's directly connected to where I'm at. And I'm trying to save these animals and they're migratory and they leave me. They leave my protection. They go over your guys' houses. Can you please help? I bet you Mary Phillips, who you're friends with, would be a yeah. big factor in that. There's a there's a, a viral TikTok couple in San Francisco that put seed in salt shakers and oh, yeah, yeah, skateboard yeah. down the road and do it like <laughs> – yeah. I'll, I'll take that too. I'll take yeah. I'll take all of those rogue movements. Um 
Yeah, I, I was just thinking like for us, you know, everyone on the along the the coast knows about the red knot and and horseshoe crabs and building habitat for that. It's it's important. It's but a lot of people don't know where do you start. It would be great to be able to have that information where they can just say, "All right, I want this because I I want this." Our more, our first two so jumpstart nature of the podcast I have. Our I was going to ask you to to please talk about yeah. that. Yeah, our first two episodes are about the subject. So the first one is your. Uh, the yard of the future. And it talks about incorporating native plants and it's got, you know, Doug Ptolemy, Mary Phillips. It's got all those folks. Um, I I've never met Mary Phillips personally. I'm just kind of a fan of hers right now. Um, she's on the podcast. Um, and then the second one is plant your feeder. And there's some really fascinating studies that Michael Hawk, uh, my partner. So how our podcast works is, um, uh, Michael Hawk and Michelle Balderson, we, we meet and we brainstorm a subject and we talk about the people who we want to have in our podcast and some of the studies and stuff. And then they go chase it. <clears throat> they go chase it down and do the writing. Okay. So they do the script writing. And uh, cause I have two other jobs. I have three jobs right now. And they're also like their IQ is probably 20 points higher than mine. Both of them. Like I love working with people who are smarter than I am. I, I love it. Cause, cause then when something hard comes up, I'm going to be like, well, you guys are so much smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyways, um, so we did plant your feeder and it's really fascinating. I stopped using bird feeders a few years ago because my mom got salmonella from, uh, which is in the podcast. It's my mom got salmonella from uh, the bird feeder and, uh, a lot of birds died because of bird feeders. And so I, I think that there's a time and place for bird feeders. I do for the vigilant bird feed cleaner, bird feeder cleaner. But I like to plant mine. And so right now I have these, um, these primrose growing in my backyard that I, that are full of seeds and they have more pine siskins and finches on them than any feeder I've ever had. And so I, I just encourage people to listen to that podcast listen to that episode and see if you need your bird feeder some places you do but there's the science behind the bird feeder there's even a study now that there's uh oh man i, I can't remember the species i'm so sorry but it's in the podcast um but there's a species that lives in the mainland of europe and on the uk and on the uk the beak is changing because it's evolving for bird seed out of a bird mm. feeder wow and um so we're already seeing adaption for uh our bird feeders and stuff so mm -hmm. it's it's interesting it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. That's that, our second episode. I, yes. I, I saw them pop up and I haven't listened yet and I apologize, but I'm going to – like I said, I added them to my list of podcasts. So I'll probably be doing that yeah. on my drive Yeah, no, today. they sound real <laughs> fascinating and I at, can't wait to listen as well. I mean it sounds well so – I'll call you guys – the other thing I'll add to that is because uh, you said you, you have like to surround yourself with smart people. That was really the reason for, for our podcast too was we weren't experts, but we figured if we we surround ourselves and bring on enough smart guests, then people would think we're experts too. We <laughs> know we're enough really smart as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Learn by interviewing. That's Which in a sense, it actually kind of worked. We have learned a ton just by doing this. You bring in – Someone who just specializes in that little niche that that, that they're so like removing amazing dams on. or something like that, and um and then yeah, a little bit we glean a little off, and then we makes us a little bit more to have a conversation with, a little more interesting, <laughs> I guess. So. Yeah, everything is get, getting so specialized now because of technology and what we're oh, learning. Yeah. That like you have to have specialists on. There's there's no generalist that can totally get it all. Now I was looking when I saw the 
your episode on the lawn, I was thinking, I was like, oh, I wish I would have known you, sh- you should have talked to Dr. Peter Grothman out of um, which at Brooklyn College or Manhattan College. Yeah, I think he's one of the Coonies, um, the the city universities in yeah. New York. But oh, he, cause well, he, he, we'll definitely hit you guys up yeah. next time. He, uh, he, they ran a whole study on the, on the psychological aspect of why people have lawns. And what it means to them and how to break that down. <laughs> like they were just talking to people about lawns and how do you break down that you don't really need this and, and how do people see the lawns and how can you sway them? We talk about that. We do a, we do an imaginary conversation with ben, Benjamin Franklin about lawns. In, <laughs> oh, um, <yeah>. podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's really interesting and something that we, we can't, we realized is that lawns are kind of like, you know, showing your dominion over your piece of wild, yeah. you know, taming your piece of wild. And that was a, that was a major part of European philosophy mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. That conquest thing, you know, it's like, and we're still doing that, you know, yeah. lawn, you know, <clears throat> we're still like, show that you have dominion over your wild, you know, you're, you're showing like your, everybody else. You're showing yeah. your status. Yeah. Or, or Benjamin Vote. Yeah. I loved when he was like, hey, you don't need to – in many parts of this country, you don't need to see if wolves are attacking anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not necessary. My, my brother and I had this same conversation Saturday uh, – excuse me, Sunday. I was driving down the road, and uh, there's this really cool meadow that he'd found, and he found a, a different species of liatris in it that we weren't familiar with, and he was going to – Go and, he got permission to go and collect seed, and um, and I was driving by, and I'm like, well, I hope you collect that seed already because it's all mowed down. And um, <laughs> and then he was like, oh, no, we were supposed to go Thursday, and we couldn't make it, so we were going to go Tuesday today. And uh, and so he was, like, really disappointed here. He got mowed down, and he's like, I don't know why they'd mow it. I'm like, well, it's just they got to conquer their domain. <laughs> that's, yeah. I did so many times. It, it, that's just kind of how it is. I was on vacation up in Maine and there's this, again, beautiful wet meadow at the front of the driveway. It's like mile long driveway. And, uh, yeah. halfway through the vacation, I see it. Oh, they mowed it. And I'm like, there's, I couldn't come. Maybe there was a good reason to mow it, but I couldn't come up with a good reason for them to mow it. Other than that, because it looked, it looked you know? weedy to them. And that was, but it had so many goldenrods and asters were starting to bloom. Oh, this was oh. like, oh, this is just gorgeous from a plant perspective. And it's providing so much habitat. And so I was really, I kind of want to tell the guy who owned the place, oh, you should have mowed there. Or why did you mow it? And just he never probably, had the conversation. But he probably you know, didn't and, want and the like, insects. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that will be, maybe you should uh, approach him in a novel way and then make a podcast about how it went. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. you know, like, and maybe even include him in on your podcast and just mm-hmm. go and be like, Hey, you know, those asters and goldenrods, they're really good for late, you know, pollinators mm-hmm. and they're good for this migration and that migration. And maybe next year you can leave them and I can help you identify them. You know, like any way we can get people interested in, if someone's kind of extroverted and likes to tell stories, like mm-hmm. there's stories yep. behind all the native plants that can tell like why, whose bite marks are these on the, on the leaves? Oh you know? yeah. And, yeah, of course. You know, yeah. I always tell people like try to become tour tour guides in your own yard because make your yard exciting. Be like, see this be- picture of a beautiful butterfly. I just happen to keep it on the you know this laminated picture of a butterfly on my wall because it's associated with this plant in my yard. And mm-hmm. the Native Americans use this plant for this and this and blah blah blah. And you, if you could tell the stories behind your plants, definitely all of a sudden you know maybe he'll stop mowing if like if he had stories to tell about the goldenrod or whatever. Maybe he'd stop mowing. mowing. Yeah, yeah, I, definitely. I would love Definitely. that. And I, I kind of did that with my wife with mountain mint. I'm like, you know, you can, uh, you know, we get mosquitoes in the backyard because of the English ivy in the back, you know, and 
You can rub the leaves on your skin and it keeps mosquitoes away. Or you can make a great tea out of this. Like so many like uses that you just don't think of. Or you know, deer don't like it because it's pungent. So it kind of keeps deer away from these other things that we're trying to protect. Yeah, mints are good for that. Yeah, totally, totally. So before we ask the last question, which is always the same last question, and it's a simple yet difficult question. For anyone that's never visited the West Coast or the Redwoods, what shouldn't they miss? If if they had to go see one thing, what would you say don't leave without seeing this? It, and it could just be as vague as the the Redwoods ecosystem. It, it can be if that's if that's what it is. Um well, yeah, it's just seeing old growth forests and going to old growth forests. And I would say be prepared to walk away from the parking lot kind of far because um, in parks, it's funny because like I have this thing I say is like if I'm a mile away from the parking lot and I rent it to someone, I know they're a European or Asian tourist because Americans don't go that far from the parking lot. <laughs> and so it's like. <laughs> and and so everybody gets there and they're like, the park is always so busy. And I want to go, it's because you're always a quarter mile from the parking lot. Um, so I would get good shoes, some water, some mosquito repellent, um, and a friend or two, maybe some bear spray, just so you feel more confident. Um, and and get and get away from the parking lot and go for a walk and 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 see how quiet it is. Old redwoods do not support a lot of insects. And so it's a very quiet forest because there's hardly, there's very few bird species there. And so um, it's, it's surreal. It's like going to another planet. It's the closest you're ever going to get to having an avatar experience. You know, it's, it really is. There's the feeling that redwoods give you is unexplainable. It's such a quieting. And I don't know if it's like, you know, call the forest. I can't remember her name, the Irish scientist who talks about, you know, she basically has scientific reasons why uh, forest bathing works because of like the aerosolization of like the biochemicals. But um, I don't know what it is about redwoods, but redwoods, everybody who I meet, I love love seeing people's first time in the redwoods it's almost as good it's almost as good as the redwoods themselves i love watching faces i love finding someone who's two miles away from the parking lot in an american that speaks english and asking them like is this your first time in the redwoods and they're like yes and their voice is always like this yeah you know and they they talk like this in this tone it's like all of a sudden they're an npr like host and um I love that. I love seeing people in the first time because it's just got such a feeling and it happens better if there's less people. So get away from the parking lot, folks. Yeah, That's awesome. my advice. Yeah, for sure. Well, if we can get and you Prairie, out. And Prairie Creek Redwood State Park is the one park I would I would recommend. Okay, awesome. And if we can get you out to New Jersey, we can hook you up and get you on a dune and salt marsh uh, restoration if you want to You wanna spend a day. Where you'd be that. planning, oh, uh, uh, you'd be planning a mafilla, but. Or Vegulata, not the, the European one. It's the native one oh, here. That, so. Oh, that would be awesome. I would love to meet an apophila uh, that I wasn't mad at. <laughs> we could yeah. do that and show you the, the pine barrens, the, the pygmy oh, pines. Yeah, that would be I awesome. I would love that. Yeah, not enough time on the East Coast. I have not spent enough time on the East Coast. I would love to, especially after reading Doug Ptolemy and all these other, mm. you know, I just really want to check it out. And it's, you know, it's one of the things that I'm trying to remember which guest was. It's like, you know, it's a temperate temperate forest like embrace that that's is what it is like it goes back to what we were talking about earlier it's like enjoy what makes this area special 
And for us in, in New Jersey, we have all the beaches and the salt marshes, but we also have the Delaware water gap uh, and mountains. And we have, uh, you know, where coastal plain meets Piedmont regions and so many cool, unique things like the Pine Barrens. It's 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 a lot like we would need you for a week. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Easy. Can I pitch a tent at the nursery? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. Awesome. Of course. Okay. I'm super, I'm super down with that. Awesome. Um, all right. So our final question is always the same question. We ask every guest and we save it till the end and we're not going to make you just pick one if you can't, but what is your favorite native plant? Uh, I want to hear all your other guests answers <laughs> first. They're all over. Um, They're all over. And some, so, some so unique hard. things that I've never heard. I love when it's something I've never even heard of before. Well, it's not redwoods because redwoods for me aren't a plant. Um, they're like their own trip. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to leave redwoods out of this. Right. Um, oak trees uh, are my favorite for so many reasons. Um, I feel a really strong affin- affinity with them. And I don't know if it's because I know I'm Irish and like I've been hearing about oak trees all my life, my grandma and stuff. My grandma and I made up our own religion. It was called the church of whatever and oak trees. Um, uh, we were very close. She was my best friend. So we, we created our own religion and our spirituality. It was called church of whatever and the oak trees. So I'd have to say oak trees, um, all types of oak trees, but probably the most Valley Oaks because I grew up looking at Valley Oaks um, and climbing Valley Oaks and pretending that I was a monkey in Valley Oaks. So and, and they support hundreds of species of wildlife, insects and stuff. Um, if I was going to pick a non-tree species, it would probably be mugwort, Artemisia. Right. Um, it's a nitrophile that grows here. And the uh, some of my indigenous friends put it in their pillows because they believe it brings them good dreams. And so I've been doing the same thing. And I so I smell like mugwort all the time. And whenever anybody asks me to plant natives in their yard if they have a wet area that's high in nitrogen because mugwort is a, a it's a it's a nitrophile um i will definitely plant it if it's within the range because i just love it so much awesome just the way it smells and feels and it, it's it's a very long and intimate relationship with humans i i think our favorite part of this question is never really the plant but the story behind the plant and those are fantastic yes. stories thank you yes we appreciate that so this is kind of we always end the show with final thoughts, and we hand it over to you first, but Tom and I always take a turn as well. This is where we hand you the floor, and you can use the time however you want. If you want to promote something, if you want to um, talk about something we hadn't mentioned, uh, if you want to summarize, however you want to use it, the time is yours, and we hand it over. So a lot of your listeners are probably what I would call the choir. Um, they're people who I don't have to convert. But I'll tell you what, the choir needs to learn the lyrics to new songs. And the, um, the song we need to be singing is, is totally in line with this podcast. We need to get native plants in the ground and we need to tell the stories behind them and we need to make them fun and we need to make it accessible. Conservation, please make it accessible to everyone. It's very, very important that everyone gets a connection to the outdoors. Everyone gets connection to nature. And, and planting native plants is, is the best way in, in for so many people and on so many levels. And they don't need a yard. You know, they need a balcony, a porch, or a church, or a school. And it, and, and it will help wildlife in such an important way. So those of you who are listening to this podcast, please take what you learn from this podcast and share it. Share this podcast. Share people's videos who are passionate 
Um, get the information out there. We can make a difference. I'm not a dope dealer, but I'm a hell of a hope dealer. <laughs> and I got, and I got the sticky icky hope. Like we have to, we can solve these problems. We can solve climate change. We can solve the extinction crisis. We can solve these things. We can do it. We can control our temperature like a thermostat. We have the technology. We can keep species from going extinct. You can do it from your yard, folks. So I just say, you know, be a tireless educator. Do not get discouraged. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of your time. Focus on the hope. I'm slanging it. So if you need some more, follow me. I'll never run out of hope. I get high on my own supply. You can follow me at Redwoods Rising. You can follow me at Griff Wild Facebook, TikTok. Um, I'm in our podcast, Jumpstart Nature. Um, we need you to make a difference. There's every reason in the world to be hopeful. Quit with the fear mongering. Let's move forward. Awesome. That, what a wonderful message. And we're yeah. going to put links to all of those things that you just mentioned in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, you can go right to the show notes and you'll be able to go right to the podcast or, or any Redwood Risings, any of those. Yeah, yeah, and if you're and if you're bummed out, like if you're bummed out on the environment, just go to redwoodsrising.org and see what we're doing. Like <clears throat> we're 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 helping so much wildlife, but we're also helping people. Like uh, a lot of these places are getting their indigenous connections restored. Mm -hmm. um, it's indigenous people out there doing a lot of the restoration work. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it, Redwoods Rising is such a wonderful project. So if you need some hope, go to redwoodsrising.org, and um, we got your doses. Awesome. Uh, that's wonderful. Tom, do you yeah. want to go? My, I probably couldn't say it as well as as griff just did but um no that was that was going to be my point too is and i bring it up all the time is we can't keep complaining and and bashing people who don't understand and i'm using quotation marks as i do that yeah. um i see it so much on on facebook especially where you see the bashing and then you see the people saying well i don't like this because everyone's getting angry at me um, it just doesn't work that way. You got to connect with people, uh, present native plants in a way that appeals to them, and um, and again, sell that hope. That's such a, a great way to do it. Is everyone mm -hmm. kind of knows, can see what's going on, and uh, and have, maybe they have a different opinions on it, but they can understand that concept. And you got to sell the hope that we can actually fix it by creating habitat and using native plants. Awesome. Great oh, message. One, one more little quick add-in. I'm sure. sorry. No. Zoe so, so Weil, from the, she's a co-founder of Institute of Humane Education. She's one of my heroes. Um, if you, She's the one that coined the word solutionary, which I use frequently. But she has a TED Talk where she captures all of what I just said in a TED Talk. But mm -hmm. basically, she uses Star Trek as our model. And, like, she talks about how you notice whenever they go back to Earth, um, it's always this green planet full of wildlife. And how they, and then, and then they're not colonists. They're not colonizing space. And she uses Star Trek as a model in one of her TED Talks that I would highly recommend. Zoe Weil, W-E-I-L. Uh, she's a hope dealer. She's, uh, you know, her, her and I know each other casually, but she knows that I'm her president of her fan club. Awesome. Yeah. I'll and add the, that in the show notes. The also. other thing I was going to add that I forgot to say was uh, we always say, hey, go. anyone can make a video. You don't have to get a hundred thousand views, 10 views is fine. Cause it's probably the people who are closest to you that are seeing it. And that's yeah. 10 people who you just sold that now are thinking about pulling out their barberry or leaving the leaves or why it's important that you have the, the golden rods and asters and that kind of yeah, stuff. If you, so, if you got someone to plant one acorn, it grew into a, it yeah. grew into an oak tree that you are a successful conservationist yeah. like that alone. You should be proud of yourself. Yeah. So make a video. If you aren't comfortable making a video, share one of the great ones that are out there that are, are relevant to your area. So 
or 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 share a photo and yeah. and say something about it. Tell your story. And one of the things uh, that Tom and I always try to do when we meet people that are listeners of the podcast. I always want to hear what their favorite native plant is. I want to have that conversation, and I want to hear why it's special to them and what makes what makes their journey unique uh, as opposed to everyone else's. And it's the one of the things that I'm most grateful for for this podcast is having the opportunity to have these wonderful conversations with, with incredible people like Griff and so many of the other guests that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I am most proud of when we get good reviews – is that the word fun gets put in a lot, and that's what gravitated me towards Griff. And we try to I'm, – I'm happy that that people can see this subject and think that it can be fun. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't have to be stuffy. It doesn't have to be too scientific. It can be on a very basic level of fun, and yeah. I, I'm no expert, and I'm not going to try to dress it up that I am. I can't have a lot of these conversations that other people have. But I can make it fun, and I can hopefully share a couple things that maybe you'll find entertaining and walk away with and learn something. And if, if we can do that, then I feel job well done. Yeah. yeah. Amen to that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, thank cool. you very much for listening to uh, – Griff, do you, what's, your, what's your full your full thing that you go by? Do you just go by Griff Griffiths? Yeah, I'm Griff Griffiths. Griff Griffiths. And, um, and then, yeah, I'm at Griff Wild on Facebook and um, TikTok. And Redwood Rising on TikTok yep, and Facebook. Yep. And you have a website, griffgriffith.info. Is that correct? Yeah, it's okay. just yeah, it's like contact or quick quick okay. links. All right. So basically. Yeah. So yeah, so you can uh, find more of Griff stuff by going to any of those links. We'll have them in the show notes as well. Uh thank and jumpstartnature.com. you. Jump, okay. And jumpstartnature.com is the podcast. Um definitely listen to that. Like Fran and I are gonna be and we're gonna give a little feedback on our our buzz you know, episode next buzz yeah we're we're gonna talk about the first two episodes yeah i think that's a good idea so, cool, so yeah. Yeah. it's a, it's it's an npr style so it's not like the griff videos and the griff podcasts are completely different because um <laughs> i have several different alter egos and one of them is actually halfway serious and that's the one that's on the podcast yeah, that's awesome yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm oh, really yeah, looking forward serious. to it. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Guys. yeah, so cool. thank you uh, to everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or uh, buy your music or buy their music wherever you consume your music. Thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or at Pinelands Nursery, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that. 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And we've had a ton of new members on the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. And I, I couldn't be more proud of the conversations that you're having there. Yeah, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch like the Plant American Plants shirt that we talked about or the Plant Native Plants shirt that we also talked about, friends wearing right now. Uh, we don't keep – or our website that you can buy those at is www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. Uh, we don't keep any of the profits for that. We basically just kind of keep them in a little lump sum, and when it gets to a big enough number, about 500 bucks. Uh, we find an organization we think is really doing really, really good work um, where that money could go a long way. Uh, so, yeah. So, Fran, this is not Fran and my get-rich-quick scheme is selling these T-shirts. It's uh, Never made it's a penny off of that. Yeah. yeah. So, and you can listen to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume your podcasts. 
Uh, and do us a favor when you're there. Give us a five-star review and hit subscribe. If you do a little write-up with that five-star review, I give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes. Uh, so with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Griff, thank you so much for all your time today. We really appreciate Thanks it. I, I feel feel thankful that we got this much oh, yeah. time considering you have three jobs. <laughs> uh, coming thank up, you for your guys' work. Uh, no problem. Coming up, we have a uh, Buzz episode next week. Make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Woods, wetlands, and dales grows a bounty of beauty that never fails. Our native plants, so diverse and so rare, treasures of our land beyond compare. From the friends below, soaring oaks above. Each plant has a place, each plant is love. Modern caterpillars, moss, milk, wheat, so tall. These buzz about, sifting methods fall. Oh, native plants, how do you grace this land? In your diversity, we will take a stand. To preserve our generations to come, may beauty and buoyancy second to none. To protect and preserve the earth, to restore the native plant food that you just can't ignore. Golden rod, asters, and flowers galore. Menard is so stunning, can't help but adore. Your colors, the fragrance, a feast for the eyes. Their value to wild, like no need to disguise. Native plants, how you grace this land in your diversity. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.